The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The sun, with its warmth and light, falls on a lump of clay and hardens it, but it has not created either the clay or the hardness. The coming of the light has brought out the nature of clay and manifested it for what it really is. The law has had exactly the same effect on our Adamic nature. Its holiness has revealed the evil that is within us, and its righteousness has aroused the enmity that is in us and hardened us. But the law did not create either the evil or the enmity or the hardness that is within us. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Vindication of the Law. In a typical episode of the old Perry Mason television series, an innocent person would be falsely accused of murder. Perry Mason would then expose the real criminal and vindicate his client. Someone may distort the Apostle Paul's teaching in the book of Romans and falsely accuse God's law of being something other than holy, just, and good. How does Paul vindicate the law of God and set forth its true purpose? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verses 12 and 13. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Vindication of the Law. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. There is none like unto thee and we rejoice that Thou art our God. Our hearts are filled with gratitude and praise to Thee, because Thou art so wonderful, and Thou hast redeemed us and taught us to love Thee. Forgive us for all the things that we have done that in any wise dishonor Thee, or that stand between us and the full outpouring of Thy power upon us. Make this hour rich to each listening heart, and accept our worship in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in the book of Romans and come to the 7th chapter, the 12th and 13th verses, which read, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Did that which is good become death unto me? God forbid. It was sin working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The first six verses of Romans 7 really belong with the preceding chapter, and the paragraph which begins with verse 7 
which we have been considering in the last few studies, concerns a subject which was suggested by the former contrast between sin as a master and the law as a husband, from both which it was a distinct mercy to be delivered. And since the law had been the catalyst which hastened the chain reaction of sin in our flesh, it might be thought that there was something sinful in the law itself. But such an idea is instantly contradicted by Paul, who declares that it is folly to think such a thing and announces that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy, just, and good. The reason why the effect of the law on us is so terrible is not because of any lack or any defect in the law itself, but because of our ruined, fallen natures, which are wholly evil and entirely unable to meet the perfections of the law's demands. The subject of this paragraph, then, is the complete vindication of the law. Using himself as the example, he points out that his conscience was a fallen one and that it would have never known what sin really was if the law had not come in to arouse him. We should realize how important this admission is in the light of the Genesis story of the seduction of Eve and her fall and the subsequent fall of Adam which brought ruin upon all the race. For how did man obtain his conscience, his conscience which is a fallen organ and which can never bring a man to the knowledge of God? The devil came to Eve and made an offer and a promise. By the acceptance of this offer, conscience came into the human heart. C.S. Lewis has paraphrased the scene in the Garden of Eden in a way that brings out this truth. He did it in what we might call dramatic form. Satan speaks and Eve replies and Satan speaks and at times the Holy Spirit adds a word. And this is the dramatization of that conversation. Satan speaks. It is a great branching out, this make-believe about things that might be, but are not. Eve replies, It is not from make-believe that I shrink back, O stranger, but from this one story that you've put into my head. If I try to make up a story about eating the forbidden fruit, I do not know how to make it about God. For if I make it that he has changed his commands, that will not go. And if I make it that we eat against his command, that is like making the sky all black and the air so that we cannot breathe it. But also, I do not see what is the pleasure of trying to make believe in this way. And Satan says, to make you wiser, stronger, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Eve says, do you know for certain that it will do that? Yes, for certain. That is how... And the Holy Spirit intervenes, do not listen to him, send him away, do not hear what he says, do not think of it. Satan intervenes, he does not want you to hear me because he wants to keep you ignorant. He does not want you to go on to the new fruits that you have never tasted before. Eve, but how could he want to keep me ignorant? Satan, have you not seen already that he is the enemy of change? Does he not always shrink back? from the wave that is coming toward us and desire, if he could, to bring back the wave that is past? In the very first hour of his talking with you, did he not betray this? Death is the greatest of all changes. And when you asked him to teach you death, he would not. He wanted you to remain ignorant, not to learn death. Eve, and will you teach us death? Yes, 
I am come that ye might have death and that ye might have it more abundantly. But you must be very courageous. Courageous? What is that? Oh, it is what makes you to swim on a day when the waves are so great and swift that something inside you bids you to stay on land. I know. And those are the best days of all for swimming. Yes, but to find death, says Satan, and with death the real wisdom and the strong beauty and the uttermost branching out, you must plunge into things greater than waves. Eve speaks. Go on. Your words are like no other words that I have ever heard. They are like, they make me think of, uh, of, uh, I, I do not know what they make me think of. Satan, greater words than these shall I speak, but I must wait till you are wiser. Make me wiser. And the Holy Spirit speaks, lady, lady, will not God make you wiser in his own time and in his own way? And will not that be far better? Satan says, you see, he himself, though he did not mean nor wish to do so, made you see a few days ago that God is beginning to teach you to walk by yourself without holding you by the hand. That was the first branching out. And since then, God has let you learn much, not from his own voice, but from mine. You are becoming your own. That is what God wants you to do. His way of making you wiser is to let you make yourself wiser. And yet this fellow would have you sit still and wait for God to do it all. Eve says, but what must we do to make him wiser? Satan, I do not think you can help him till you are wiser yourself. You cannot help anyone yet. You are a tree without fruit. That's very true. Go on. Then listen, have you understood that to wait for God's voice when God wishes you to walk on your own is a, a kind of disobedience? Eve, I, I think I have. Satan, the wrong kind of obeying can itself be a disobeying. Eve, I see, I see. Oh, how wise you make me. Satan, are you certain that God really wishes to be always obeyed? Could the taking away of your hand from his, the full growing up, the walking in your own way, could that ever be perfect unless you had, if only once, seemed to disobey him? Eve, how can one seem to disobey? Satan, by doing what he only seemed to forbid. There might be a commandment which he wished you to break. Eve, but if he told us we were to break it, then it would be no command. And if he did not, how, how should we know? Satan, how wise you are growing. No, if he told you to break what he commanded, it would be no true command, as you've seen. For you're right, he makes no jests. A real disobeying, a real branching out. This is what he secretly longs for. Secretly, because to tell you would spoil all. Eve, I begin to wonder whether you are so much wiser than I. How can I step out of God's will except into something that cannot be wished? To walk out of his will is to walk into nowhere. Satan, that is true of all his commands except one. Eve, but can that one be different? Satan, you see yourself that it is different. His other commands be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth and have dominion over it. You see for yourself that these commands are good. But this about not eating the fruit. 
is mere command. It's forbidding for the sake, the mere sake of forbidding. But why? Satan, in order that you may break it. What other reason can there be? Is not God showing you as plainly as he can that it was set up as a test that you may become really wise even as gods? The Holy Spirit speaks. Lady, I am grieved. If I speak, will you hear me? Gladly. This one has said that the command not to eat the fruit is different from other laws because we cannot see the goodness in it. And so far he says, well, but then he says that it is thus different in order that you may disobey it. But there might be another reason. Say it. The spirit speaks. God made one law of that kind in order that there might be obedience. In all these other matters, what you call obeying him is only doing what seems good in your own eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, but not only because they are his will. Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you do something for which his bidding is the only reason? Eve says to the spirit, that is the best you have said yet. This makes me wiser far, yet it does not feel like the wisdom this other is giving me. Oh, how well I see it. We cannot walk out of God's will, but he has given us a way to walk out of our will, and there could be no such way except a command like this. And now I return to comment on this. You can see the difference between the two kinds of wisdom. The one descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. But that which is from above is first of all the pure and then peaceful, gentle, approachable, full of compassion and kind actions. But we know from the revelation of God that the woman followed the wisdom of Satan, thinking she was doing the right thing. Adam came later and followed the wisdom of Satan, knowing full well that he was walking into complete and deliberate disobedience and entering on that path willfully since he wanted nothing so much as his own way. It was this that brought the fall upon man, and in this act of Adam the entire race was lost. The mind became darkened, and the heart deceitful above all things. Having followed the wisdom that was from Satan, there was no possible way to reach the heart, to arouse it to its condition, except through the quickening power of the Holy Spirit and the entering of the law of God, which was holy, and the commandment, which was holy, just, and good. There can be no thought, therefore, that there is any evil whatsoever in the law of God, because it stirs up the evil that is in man. We must realize that conscience is a depraved and fallen thing, and that it came originally from Satan and that the wisdom of man is a wisdom that is derived from fallen Adam. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. But that wisdom was not divine wisdom. Such wisdom must come only from the Holy Spirit and in regeneration. So Paul now asks another question. Did that which is good become death unto me? God forbid. It was sin working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Now, it's a difficult sentence to translate, and Phillips has perhaps thrown some light on it with his paraphrase, for he renders it thus. Can it be that something that is intrinsically good could mean death to me? No. What happened was this. Sin, at the touch of the law, 
was forced to expose itself as sin, and that meant death for me. The contact of the law showed the sinful nature of sin. Now, since there is a definite break in the narrative at this point, and the following verses, which we'll take up in the next study, the Lord willing, plunge into the heart of the conflict within the life of the awakened and justified believer, it's good to stop for a moment to summarize what we have seen in the last few studies. Dr. Thomas has given a brief outline which is succinct and accurate. Verses 7 to 13 cover the question of the relation of the law to sin. One, the law reveals the fact of sin in verse 7. The material in this section seems beyond question to be autobiographical. Paul is telling us how the law made him to know the meaning of covetousness. So by the law is the fact of sin. Second, the law reveals the occasion of sin. The law was not sin, nor did it bring sin, but it woke up the sin that was already existing in his heart. Third, the law reveals the power of sin. For before the law came, he found it possible to live comfortably with himself. But as soon as the law came, he felt himself utterly condemned to death. It was then that he knew the awful force of evil that there was within himself. Thus, the commandment which God set forth to show men life was found by the sinful heart to be unto death. Fourth, the law reveals the deceitfulness of sin. Through the commandments, sin takes advantage of us and beguiles us, seduces us. We are brought to try to do something in our own strength, to trust our own wisdom, and we are left with the realization of our complete helplessness and hopelessness. Fifth, the law reveals the effect of sin. There can be no other fruitage from the law but death. The commandment had no power whatsoever to bring life, and it necessarily therefore brings death, since the sinner knows that there is no possibility of fulfilling what the law demands. Sixth, the law reveals the sinfulness of sin. The law is holy because it reveals sin. The law is just or righteous because it condemns the sinner to death. The law is good because of the fact that it shows what a holy God would demand and has no purpose that is not spiritual. It was therefore impossible to say that that which was good became death to Paul. The law does not invite sin, but it uncovers it. And it was not the law, but the sin that brought death. And though he will come back to this point with other questions later on in the chapter, there has been enough set forth here to show that the law is not sin and that it does not work death. We have seen that the law reveals the fact of sin, the occasion of sin, the power of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the effect of sin, and the sinfulness of sin. And so it is that it is sin that slays the man. How well Paul says to the Corinthians, the strength of sin is the law. Now four times in the paragraph which we are concluding, there is the expression through the law or through the commandment. In verse 7, 8, 11, and 13, all of these things come to us through the law and through the commandment. It is only when we know as a settled fact that we have been justified once for all and seen by God to be as holy and as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ himself 
that we can take the first steps in a sanctification that will be pleasing to God. And as soon as we have learned that we have been justified, we must go on to die in our hearts to everything that is of ourselves. The law comes in to hasten this process and to bring us to know that there is no possible hope in any self-effort. No man, not the best or the most saintly by any human definition, can keep the law of God even for one hour. We're in danger of being like the Pharisees in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. They boasted in the law, but what they had really done was to build themselves up like a short man who buys platform-soled shoes. And at the same time, they had whittled down the divine law to bring it within their reach so that they could measure themselves by it and console their old natures with the thought that they were approximating the thing that was set before them by God for their condemnation. If there is any of that in us, it must be put to death by God before there can be any beginning of sanctification in the New Testament sense. I am more and more convinced that God hates the holiness that is produced by the flesh, no matter what form it may take. He wants only the holiness that comes from the Holy Spirit through Christ. Now, the purpose of this whole section of the epistle to the Romans is to set forth the basis and groundwork of sanctification, which is growth in holiness. Now we have left the doctrine of justification behind us, and we will not find it again except as an example and as a reminder that we have stepped to that plateau and can never step backwards. Now the Lord has brought us to the riser of the next step. And if we are to step up and stand upon the next tread in the stairway of progress, of spiritual progress, we must realize that it is not to be done in our own powers. We must be lifted again to the point where we shall go forward on the upward path of moment-by-moment -moment triumph in the sanctification which God has provided by his marvelous plan of joining us to Christ in his death and resurrection severed from the law, cut off from any hope in the flesh, we stand powerless and naked before him. Then we can see our place in grace and go forward quietly in the way which he has designed, a way which will give all the glory to God, to the God of all grace, and which will ever keep us in the place of total bankruptcy. Thus, our gaze must turn from ourselves and be fixed on Christ alone. It is then that the Holy Spirit will draw us into himself in a conviction for true holiness, and we shall learn that it is better to have one moment of holiness that comes from grace alone than a lifetime of counterfeit holiness, which may have such an outward appearance of reality, but which is so hateful to God. In view of these tremendous facts, don't let anyone worry you by criticizing what you eat or drink or what holy days you ought to observe, or bothering you over new moons or Sabbaths. All these things have, at most, only a symbolical value. The solid fact is Christ. And do not let any man cheat you of your joy in Christ by persuading you to make yourselves humble and fall down and worship angels. Such a man, inflated by an unspiritual imagination, is pushing his way into matters he knows nothing about and in his cleverness, forgetting Christ the head. For it is from the head alone that the body, by natural channels, 
is nourished and built up and grows according to God's laws of growth. So if through your faith in Christ, you are dead to the principles of this world's life, why, as if you were still part and parcel of this worldwide system, why do you take the slightest notice of these purely human prohibitions? Don't touch this, don't taste that, and don't handle the other. This, that, and the other will all pass away after use. I know that these regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts at worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body, but in actual practice, they do honor not to God, but to man's own pride. And our Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this word to each heart and use it in this hour for thy dear namesake. Amen. God's perfect law reveals our complete ruin and sin and our inability to accomplish our own salvation. It drives us from trusting in ourselves and leads us to abundant mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Vindication of the Law. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Vindication of the Law, or simply ask for message number R7-13. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Why and How to Study the Bible. Christians have many excuses for why their Bibles never find their way off the bookshelf. I don't have enough time. Scripture is too hard to understand. I just don't know where to begin. This free booklet explains why Bible study is so important and how to dig into the Scriptures in a way that will make them come alive. You can enjoy a lifetime of fruitful study and application of God's Word. Ask for your free copy of Why and How to Study the Bible when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.